We're in Matthew chapter 18 uh, this morning. It's Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. That's what we're looking at as we continue to walk our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And let's go ahead and we'll pray as we open Matthew 18 this morning. Our Father, we do pray this morning that you would bless your children, that you would allow us to receive some of the crumbs from the table, that we would feast upon the bread of life this morning, and that we would be nourished by your word, that you would work in our hearts and our souls by the power of your Spirit, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Wonder, as you think about it, as we all do at various times, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? That is, what do you want to mark you? There are certain things that are more beneficial than other things. I want to read to you a verse this morning from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. And it reads this, This is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. This is the one to whom I will look. Now, who does he look to? Who does he 
look upon. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Gospel humility. In the context, the Israelites are thinking pretty highly of themselves. They are God's people. They have great knowledge. They have a sense of independence. They are self-confident. They are self-reliant as the people of God. They are even religious. And God says to them, this is not what draws my gaze. This is not what puts a smile on my face. But it's the humble I dare say that few of us think about pursuing humility. And yet that's the very thing that puts a smile on the face of our Father. The disciples and Jesus are walking here in our text. Mark and Luke will also give an account of this little interchange. In Mark's gospel, he will say that as the disciples and Jesus are walking, a large dispute, disagreement erupts among the disciples. And what is it that they are debating or they are disputing about or disagreeing about? It is the question of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, I think, well, it's encouraging they're having that conversation in that at least they recognize that the kingdom of heaven has come or that it is coming into the world. They recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. They recognize that He is the promised King to come, and they have been His allies. They have been some of His chief advisors, and so they think as the administration comes into office, maybe I'm the Secretary of State, maybe you're the Secretary of Interior, and they're beginning to discuss it. But in another way, it is very discouraging, isn't it? We aren't sure how the argument erupts among the disciples, maybe it was Peter who first came forward and said, you know, I think I'm probably greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It was I who first confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And Andrew says, but Peter, you would have never gone to Jesus if I hadn't pointed him to you, pointed him out to you and said, this is the one. Maybe James steps up and says, yes, but I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John says, well, I was there too. And Peter says, well, I was the one who alone walked out on the water in faith. The other 11 disciples probably responded, well, and you were alone the one who sunk out in the water. We don't know exactly what the discussion was or how they discussed it. But we do know that they were stoking the fires of pride in one another. How often that's true in a circle of friends and fellow laborers as a group. Stir one another up to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think of ourselves. So first, Jesus warns us in this text that a lack of gospel humility will cause us to think too highly of ourselves. He warns us that a lack of gospel humility would lead us to think too highly of ourselves. At a football coach in high school, he was a star running back at a 
at a college and was was very good, though he wasn't drafted into the NFL. He was invited to a training camp of an NFL team to to try out during the training camp. And we asked him whether he ever made one of those teams, and he said no, he actually hadn't. And we asked why, and he said, well, I quit in the middle of the training camp. I didn't continue in it. And we asked why. Why would you quit in the middle of the training camp? He said, well, one day I was in the lunch line there in the cafeteria at the training camp, and he said, I turned around, and when I turned around, I was staring at another man's belt buckle. And he said, I thought, if they are this big in the NFL, this is not the place for me. There was stature. The founding fathers would often talk about George Washington having stature, and yet he didn't have the skills of oration that John Adams had, or didn't have the wisdom or the age that Franklin had. He didn't have the mind that Thomas Jefferson had. But they all described him as having stature. And in part, it was because he was a head taller than everyone else in the room. He just had a presence. When the nation of Israel is looking for their first king, in part, it is King Saul that is selected because he is a head taller than everyone else. He has stature. He looked the part of a leader. But Jesus, in our passage, He takes a small child and He takes that child and He sets that child in the presence of these disciples. Matthew says he actually sets the child in the midst of them. So here is a child that is surrounded by these 12 grown Jewish adult men, and the child is in the middle. And if you were a bystander, and you had walked up on this group, and you had heard the question, who's the greatest in this group? Your eyes would have run to Peter, or to Andrew, or to Thomas, or to John, or to James. That's not how it works in the kingdom. Jesus points at the child. They're concerned with who is greatest in the kingdom. And you'll notice that Jesus takes them back to square one because they're missing it. He takes them back to even before that, and He takes them back to you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you turn and become like children. You're worried about who is the greatest. You won't even enter if you're not like a child. And ah, that we would all start here. That we would understand that we don't run to these other things without first understanding this. Jesus says that we must turn. It's literally the word repent. That we might turn, repent, and become like a child. Without turning, you do not enter the kingdom. Without gospel humility, you do not enter the kingdom. There is no salvation. As Jesus will say to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. You must turn in gospel humility to God and become like a child. Children exemplify trust and reliance, just kind of simple, unadorned, humble, trusting faith. I used to love when my children were of the age that we would walk into a crowd or we would walk into a, a busy store and I could just kind of reach my hand back and a little hand would fill my big hand and 
attached to that little hand was a little arm, and attached to that little arm was a little body, and wherever I went, that little body just followed. There was just dependence, just humility, just trust. Those days are gone. Just as little children depend upon their parents, so we as children are to look to the Father in faith. Jesus is saying that's the only way you can receive this kingdom. But it's also the only way to continue in that kingdom. Humility. Listen, Christianity, philosophically speaking, is the most anti-Darwinian thing going. It isn't survival of the fittest, it is survival of the humblest. It is recognizing that like a child, I don't have sufficient knowledge. Like a child, I don't have wisdom. Like a child, I need to constantly look for help. I'm dependent upon my Father. And the more mature we are in the faith, the more our life of faith looks like that of a child. Continually looking to Him. Continually following after Him. But the disciples here, they've begun to read their own press clippings. Reminds me of Winston Churchill one time. He was talking and he said, We are all worms, but I am a glowworm. I think that is probably where the disciples are at at this point. We're all worms, but I glow a little brighter than some of the others. As we come into the kingdom, we come in with the garment of humility, and as we continue in the kingdom, we continue in humility. None of us are glowworms. This isn't how the world works, though, is it? It is often the bold, it's the loud, it is the outspoken, it is the opinionated who are pushed highest and furthest. Pride and independence and arrogance and cockiness, it makes for a good quarterback, it makes for a good broker on Wall Street, but it makes for a poor Christian. It makes for success in the secular world, but it makes for failure in the spiritual. And so Jesus warns us, warns us that if we do not have gospel humility, we will think too highly of ourselves. Second, he warns us that when there is a lack of gospel humility, we think too little of others. He's not simply concerned with our becoming like children. He's actually concerned with children. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's humbleness that marks an adult who receives a child, that will listen to a child, that will speak with a child, because that child doesn't have a lot to give. And Jesus says even receiving one child hospitably is important to Him. I've often thought that it's a sign of a healthy church if it values its children. It's a sign of a healthy person spiritually if they value children. It is surely one of the great signs that our society has declined so far that there is a lack of valuing of children in our society today. Jesus says even receiving one hospitably is important to Him. 
But I think this passage is speaking of more than simply considering children as an age category. Jesus is speaking about putting a stumbling block in the way of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Those who have entered the kingdom, who have turned who have become like children, and so now therefore are identified as children in the kingdom, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus is saying that when we receive such a child, a child of the Heavenly Father, that we receive Him. These little ones are united to Christ. They are marked by His name, hence why we call one another Christians. Right When Paul is on the road to Damascus and he has been persecuting the church and Christ will thunder from the heavens, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The answer could be, I didn't persecute you, I'm persecuting the church. Precisely. I'm the head of the church and the church is my body. We are united. We are one. We are co-heirs who will reign for all of eternity. So when you receive one of these little ones, you receive me. That should lead us to receive others with open arms and humble acceptance rather than neglect or judgment. But you'll notice, though, that Jesus is not simply concerned with our receiving one another, but with our helping one another. Specifically, our intentionally trying not to lead one another into sin. Gospel humility causes us to think constantly of others. To consider others better than ourselves. To have others in the forefront of our mind. And it shapes our interactions with others. Why don't you think about the scene here? Why would these disciples erupt in a, in a disagreement like this? Why would this discussion happen? Well, it surely is because this thought was going through the mind of one of them. At least one of them was thinking, I think I might be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But it wasn't enough just to have the thought. That one had to vocalize it. Because he wanted something from the others. He, he wanted some kind of respect or some kind of acknowledgement that, yes, you are the best among us. And that led all of the others to enter into this conversation and begin debating, no, I actually think I might have priority over you. Pride does this. It always solicits others to join in with us in our sin, either by thinking that we as a group are better than others, that we as a group have it more put together than others, that we are greater than others, that others are somehow less than us, or that one of us is greater than the rest, and we want the rest to bow down to us. We have more knowledge, we have more ability, we have more gifts, we have more wisdom, we have more experience, we have more and Jesus says, humility is how you enter, and humility is how you continue in my kingdom. He's warning them. And He's warning us not to make one another stumble. We can do this in so many ways. It can happen by our own lack of faithfulness. It can happen by our own example. It often happens in our conversations. We participate in or we 
lead in, whether that is gossip or slander or ridicule or judgment or controversy. Remember in college, one of the first verses I ever memorized was Proverbs 26, 18. Like a madman shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. And I memorized it with a group of all the men that was in this campus fellowship that I was in. Because we realized that when we were together as men, young men, we were just filled with coarse joking. We were constantly making fun of someone else or making fun of one another to try and make each other laugh. And we realized that we were making one another stumble. The judgment Jesus describes here is not insignificant for such a thing. If it wasn't so serious, it would be a comical picture. He talks about a millstone, this great stone that would have a a hole cut in the center and it was used to, to pound down grain and to crush grain and it's so big that a donkey would have to be used to help turn that stone. And he's saying, someone that leads another into sin, it would be better for them to have their head in the middle of that large millstone and be thrown into a, the water and drowned. And it'd be comical if it wasn't so funny. Nobody could walk around with a millstone on their head. No one could make their way out into the water on a bow with a millstone around their neck. But he's saying it'd be better to have such a stone around your neck and drown than the judgment that will come for those who make a child or make a child of God go astray. He's saying, take this seriously. Very seriously. Why? Because sin is that serious. It's that serious. Our third point, Jesus warns That when there is a lack of gospel humility, we often think too little of our sins. We think too little of our sins. It's pride that makes us think little of the sins that we commit, especially against one another. We can quickly rationalize it. We can argue why it is that we committed this sin or why it wasn't sin and we go down that path. But the more we understand who God is, the more we find ourselves grieved by our sin. That's another way of saying the more humble we are and the more we are grieved, the more we are grieved with our personal sin. The degree to which we find personal sin offensive has direct correlation with how much we find God attractive. The more beautiful God is, the more ugly our sin is. And Jesus uses picturesque language here to awaken you and I to the danger of the sin and the ugliness of it. He says it would be better for you to take your hand and gouge out your eye. It would be better to cut off your arm or cut off your foot. Jesus, that seems awfully extreme. I was reading last night of, about some animals that I was looking up some of these stories where an animal will be caught in a trap and an animal will chew through 
skin and flesh and muscle and tendons and even bone to and chew off their own paw to, to get out of the trap. They're willing to suffer great loss to avoid the greater loss. And it's fascinating to me that a brute animal can be more aware of their mortal danger than we are of our immortal danger. Sin is more than dangerous. It is deadly. Eternally deadly. And that's why Jesus goes to the extreme here. He's not advocating self-mutilation, but He is advocating intentional mortification. Seeking to put to death, to take off that lust, to take off that hatred, to take off that envy, to take off that pride, to take off that gossip. Cutting off that which would lead me to continue in sin. Better to lose the thing than our life. Better to lose the enjoyment of that nightly drink or lose that friend who leads me to gossip or lose that phone that makes pornography accessible. Better to lose the thing than my life. When you and I think of our lives, we often think, well, it's my decision. I'll suffer the consequences. Jesus' is pointing out here in the text, it isn't just about you and I when we're considering our sin. Our sin always affects others. It leads others into sin. And it affects these little ones. Gospel humility leads me to understand that my sin always affects others. But there's more. My personal life matters Because if we can say it in this way, it also affects God. My life is not just my own. It is precious to God. That leads to our final point. Jesus, after what is heaviness here in the Gospel of Matthew, He brings this great comfort of the truth that gospel humility recognizes that God treasures us. He gives us a picture of a a sheep that has wandered away from the fold. There is a a fold, a a flock of a hundred sheep, and one wanders off, and there are 99 that are left. And that one sheep has gone off, and he is in the danger of the wilderness, and he is in the danger of starvation, and he is the danger of thirst. And that shepherd so cares for this one sheep that he leaves the 99 to go after the one. You stop and think about that for a moment. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. We'd say, well, you have the 99. Why risk losing the 99 for the one? And he would say, because each and every one matters. The one matters. There's a juxtaposition here in the text, isn't there, between the disciples and the Lord Jesus. The disciples are caught up with caring about themselves. The others don't matter as much. 
Whereas Jesus shows us that God cares for each one of us and every single one of us matters to Him. You matter. Revelation 21, we're told that those who are His have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. We see here in this passage that Jesus says that they have angels that are before the face of the Father in heaven. Always before the face of the Father. Some say, well, that, that's where we get the idea of guardian angels from. But they're not here on earth and there's no correlation where there is one angel for one person that's on earth. You don't see that here in the text. Maybe one represents a myriad of people on earth. We don't know. But what we do know is that God appoints His heavenly host to help keep and safeguard His children on earth. He cares for you that much. And yet, we wander and we think, well, God has forgotten me. Maybe God has forsaken me. Israel often thought this in Isaiah 49. We read this, but Zion said, Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. It's not a question, it's an accusation on behalf of Israel, he's forgotten me. And the Lord responds to Isaiah the prophet saying this, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. The most intimate of bonds that we see on earth between a mother and a child, sometimes that is severed, isn't it? And God is saying, I'm even more faithful than the greatest bond you see on earth. I am so attentive to my children that there is never that division. Our names are written on his hands, Isaiah says. I can't be forgotten. And so he leaves the 99 for the one because every single one matters. My family, we have a, a fire plan in our family. Uh, we've reviewed it since the kids were very young. It's quite a robust plan. The idea is everybody get out of the house and meet across the street in the neighbor's front yard if there's a fire. I think if our house caught on fire and I made my way out of the house and made it through the fire and out of the house and emerged from that smoke and if I saw Leah and Ethan standing there, I would rejoice, but the very first words out of my mouth would be, where is Grayson? And if it was Leah and Grayson standing there and Ethan wasn't there, the very first words out of my mouth would be, where is Ethan? If Leah wasn't standing there, it would be, where is Leah? And if one of them wasn't there, an army couldn't keep me from running back into that house. Not because I don't rejoice in the two, but because each one matters to me more than my very life. You matter to Him more than His very life. 
son sacrifices himself for you. He goes after the one. Every single one of you. You say, but all that I've done, all the wandering, all the sin, it's, a, it's not a millstone around my soul. And Jesus says, yes, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It takes gospel humility. It takes turning in gospel humility and coming to the Son. I wonder if you think, I wonder how I would be received. You don't have to wonder. Jesus tells you in the text. I think we have in our minds what we do, and we expect the Father to act as we would act. If one of my children ran away, one of our children ran away, and the police brought them back home, I am sure I would rejoice as soon as they were in the door, and I would rejoice a little bit and then give them a hug, and then there would be a long talking to. How dare you run away? Do you know how you scared us? Do you know what jeopardy you were in? And I would probably send them to their room without dinner. But that's not how our Father responds. When you're found by Him, He doesn't bring you into the sheepfold with condemnation and rebuke, but with rejoicing. When He brings the one back, it is cause for rejoicing, Jesus says. It's the will of the Father that not one of these little ones should perish. Our Savior carries us home. The Father pulls up His gown and He runs to meet His prodigal Son. A feast is prepared and there is rejoicing. The God of the heavens rejoices over you. He who made all things rejoices over you. And smiles over you. When you turn to Him in gospel humility, though your sin is great, your Savior is greater. Though your pride has been full, His forgiveness is fuller. When you come to Him in humility, the Father rejoices. Let us turn to Him in gospel humility. And let us continue day after day to turn to Him in gospel humility. That puts a smile on the face of our Father. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice at Your goodness to sinners such as us. And that though we wander, You are willing and the person of your Son to come chasing after us. We pray that we would be those who walk in gospel humility, who turn in gospel humility, who become like children, and grow in childlike faith all the days of our lives. That you might receive the glory and help us to rejoice. The fact that you smile upon us as your children. 
In Christ's holy name. Amen.